welcome to Radio Utopistan, episode number 10, part 2. Really happy you tuned in again. Even though, as we heard, the first part of Padre Phyllis Utopia brought some tears to some of your eyes. That is, of course, not our aim, but it means he touched your utopian heart, and that is our aim. So at the end of this episode, we decided we'll give you a summary of all the utopian aspects of the story, because we do not want to leave you depressed about all the evil out there. No, uh, rather hopeful, because even in seemingly hopeless cases like drug violence in Mexico, there are amazing people, people full of joy and courage, trying to find constructive solutions. And it's even working. So let's just dive straight back into Guerrero, Mexico. And some news about what's going on with Radio Topistan in our little organization at the end of this episode, if you're curious. And if you haven't listened to the first part of this story here about Padre Fili, I highly recommend you to do that. Then you can understand better where we're here. And like in part one trigger warning we'll talk about violence so if you think this might harm you please listen to one of the other episodes for example the one about unconditional basic income okay now Guerrero today we'll visit the forensic institute to look for a missing son we see if Padre Fili can establish a side hustle with Mescal for his human rights organization, and we learn about the connection of the violence in Guerrero to drug trafficking in the US and to illegally exported weapons from Germany. And what I found very interesting, how to talk to narcos. My name is Elisabeth Weid. I'm a journalist on the topics of natural resources and radicalism and very happy you're here. So thanks for tuning in and taking the time. So we've been around with Padre Fili, who's fighting for truth, justice and moments of joy in a place full of violence. We've been to the school of Ayotzinapa, the school that is missing 43 of its students after a police attack seven years ago. We spoke to one of the survivors and now we are on the way to Chilpancingo, the capital of Guerrero. You remember Fili's ragged car? That's where we are in now. He's singing along with the music and we are all hopping away on the bumpy road between Chiapas, where his church is, and Chilpancingo. There are many, many speed bumps on this way where you have to slow down to almost walking speed. <laughs> Philly loves to speed up right afterwards and then suddenly slowing down before the next one, like a game. The goal of this journey is not so joyful, though we are on the way to the Forensic Institute to look for a dead body. Before this road trip, I had asked him why Ayotzinapa and the work he's doing there is so important to him that he's even risking his life. Ayotzinapa for me means like a second opportunity for life. Because I spent a, a lot of years, many years, searching for the meaning of my life. I studied philosophy and also religion and 
I always was asking about what was my place for me in this world. And I had the opportunity to work as a nurse, to work in other things, also to be a, a monk in a religious community. But I never felt complete. But when I visit this place, it gives me a meaning of life. Because this place has, they have struggled for decades. This is not just the in 2014 with the 43. There had been always some troubles, some fights. And outside the car we have beautiful scenery, mountain range, trees with red flowers and little vegetable shops and street restaurants along the road. Inside the car there's also Christina sleeping now, remember? The mom whose son went to play basketball and never came back. And the mom who invited us for this special dish, Pozole Verde, the other day. Her real name isn't Christina. For security reasons, we decided to give her another name. Early morning here on this day, we picked her up at the street corner where she is working every day, selling bread rolls, rice milk and coffee from a little wagon. Then in the car we have the accountant of Philly's small human rights organization. He just started his job a few weeks ago, was in big business before and needs to learn something about human rights, as he says. He knows Philly from when they were young. Now he wanted to do something purposeful with his life, so he moved from Mexico City, one of the biggest cities in the world, to Chiapas in the mountains. Then there's another lady in the car with us and she knows a lot about plants, traditional healing, about human rights and about the human condition in general. After a two-hour ride and what felt like 200 speed bumps, we arrive at Chilpancingo. Higel Ramirez is already waiting in front of the Forensic Institute. He's a lawyer and also part of Philly's team. Outside the car, Christina is getting nervous, she says. She brought documents and photos of her son, who went missing one and a half years ago. Friends of her son told her that they saw the police take him that day at the basketball ground, she says. She went to various authorities, to the police, to the state prosecutor. Nothing helped. So maybe today she'll find some clarity at the Forensic Institute of Guerrero. They get about 300 unidentified bodies a year here. Maybe one of them is her son. In all Mexico, there are about 40,000 unidentified bodies. This, again, is a number that is very hard to understand. 40,000 unidentified bodies, meaning there are 40,000 sons, daughters, husbands, boyfriends, bodies, lying somewhere and their relatives still have hope to see them alive one day, like Christina, who still cannot grieve. Bueno, este, somos del Centro de Derechos de las Víctimas de Violencia Minerva Bello, y una de las personas que acompañamos es aquí la señora. Tengo a mi hijo desaparecido desde hace... Staff members from the Forensic Institute led us into a room with the Eiffel Tower hanging from the wall, and I'm allowed to record the whole procedure. An officer with a black covert mask, a black t-shirt and a black vest is sitting behind a desk and taking notes. 
Christina seems quite brave and talks with a strong voice. The man wants to know all the little details about her son's appearance. What fabric were his trousers made of the day he disappeared? What pattern was on his t-shirt? Did he have any characteristics? Oh yes, Christina says, a small eagle tattoo on his hand, pierced ears but no earrings. It takes more than half an hour to note everything down, as if it mattered. At one point, the officer and Hegel, the lawyer, make a sad joke that for a Mexican it comes quite convenient when they have at least one to two. Philly smiles in the background. The officer is friendly, he seems to care. He says he will get back to Christina when he finds something matching her descriptions. I ask him what his job taught him over the years, what taking down all those notes and seeing all the dead bodies taught him about life and humans. He's doing it since more than 10 years, he says. Sobre todo la, la violencia aquí en el estado, ¿no? Es lo que a veces no no logramos comprender por qué He doesn't understand why there is so much violence in this country, he says. Sometimes he just fails to understand. Why are there so many people disappearing? But with this, he learned to value life a little bit more, he says, to be more human himself. Philly says... If there were more humans focusing on being human in whatever position they are in, it would help a lot to disrupt the circles of violence. And I think that is the key for any peace movement or any conflict that we want to resolve is that there had to be a dialogue and there had to be an agreement of no aggression. So and then we can start talking about our differences We can start talking about forgiveness and even what is making us enemies. Because sometimes there is nothing that makes us enemies from ourselves. These are sometimes, they are outside us. Sometimes it's the system, sometimes it's the religion, sometimes it's the education, sometimes it's cultural issues. But when we find ourselves as human beings, we can tell that both of the parts are victims of the unjust system. Outside the forensic institute, I ask Hegel, the lawyer, what this appointment was all about. Does it really matter? Does it really make a difference? Or was it just to soothe Christina, to calm her down, to calm her down for another year till she realizes she will never hear back from that institute or the officer? Hegel has been working as a human rights lawyer in Guerrero since 15 years. Se ve un menosprecio a la gente, que no es una prioridad para el gobierno, para las autoridades, este tipo de apoyo a la gente. People are simply not taken seriously at all by the authorities. They are treated disrespectfully, turned away. And it is the same in all the places, he says. Jurisdiction, administration, police, local politicians. They simply don't help the people. On the contrary, they send them into endless cycles of bureaucracy, and the missing relatives never turn up. According to Hegel, this sometimes is exactly the intention of the authorities. And in the worst cases, he says, the very police to whom you file your missing persons report, this very same police made your relative disappear. 
quien se llevó al familiar. And that's really creepy. Higl also insisted on telling his real name, Higl Ramirez. He doesn't want fear to take over, he says. And he doesn't care if he can change a lot or just a little bit with his work. Como yo, como ser humano o como defensor, no puedo resolver todo, ¿verdad? Ni, ni tengo el poder, ni nada. Of course he cannot solve the problem of the violence, he says. It's way too huge. I don't have the power to do anything close to solving the problem, he says. The only thing I can do from where I am is defending human rights. I prefer to do as little as I can do and not to stay silent and that way become complicit. And maybe there will be moments when I succeed to improve the situation in my very little tiny surroundings, he says. And that's what gives him hope, what keeps him going. Back in Chilapa, we have food and a break. Later in the afternoon, I stopped by at Cristina's house. She said she wanted to tell me her story and the story of her son. We talked for more than an hour, sitting in her bedroom. Downstairs, her two daughters are cleaning the kitchen. There's a lot of grief when Cristina is telling her story, but also anger. Y pues no, no se vale, pues. Somos seres humanos y todos sentimos. Todos sentimos, nos duele. We are humans, she says. How can they expect us to live like this, without knowing, without justice, without anything, she says. Where shall I go to grieve for my son? Where shall I go to cry for him? I don't know where he is or what is happening. I never cry in front of my daughters. I only cry here on my bed because I do not want my daughters to see me so depressed. Why did they take my son? The government has to do something, she says. They have to do something. They have to take responsibility. We cannot live like this in this turmoil, she says. Her husband is of no use either, she says. Always drunk, not earning any money. She would like to divorce him, but she doesn't have the money for the lawyer to do so. On my way out, I see him in the kitchen looking for food. He mumbles a shy buenas tardes and doesn't look me in the eyes. Until today, almost seven months later, Christina is still sending me little messages every now and then. Pictures of flowers, a good morning or comforting phrases, proverbs. On Women's Day, for example, she sent this one. For you, woman... May you be strong like an oak tree. May you have the courage of an armed knight and a contagious kindness. At the memorial service in Phyllis Church, Christina was standing like an armed knight in front of the altar, next to the other parents who lost their kids. She is holding a small portrait photo of her son in front of her belly. He is holding a candle in that picture, as if at a religious ceremony. He is wearing a black and red shirt. Christina in real life and at this real ceremony in front of the altar is wearing blue running shoes, a blue tight t-shirt and black leggings. Three local journalists are there taking pictures of the grieving parents and even the bishop is attending the event. La paz esté con 
The bishop commemorates the missing 43 and all the missing people of Mexico. He prays for the families and that their cases will be solved one day. Philly says he is happy and lucky having a bishop supporting his human rights work. That gives him a respect within the community and among some officials, which means at least some security. There is no end in sight to the violence in Mexico. The war on drugs has basically achieved the opposite of what it actually wanted to achieve. The organized crime is divided in many more groups and subgroups with no clear affiliations. Their criminal fields go far beyond drug trafficking, which makes conflicts even more and more confusing. The state is mostly helpless and, and sometimes even involved. While originally a handful of cartels fought for control of drug routes, it is estimated that now hundreds of groups nationwide are involved in a variety of criminal activities, including murder, kidnapping, extortion, robbery, human trafficking, arms smuggling, prostitution, document forgery, product piracy, and the sale of fuel and gas stolen in huge quantities from the pipelines of the state oil company. Political scientists and sociologists are largely in agreement. The main causes of this drug conflict and the progressive spread of organized crime are the decades-long tolerance of criminal activities by the state, corruption, the huge profit margins that can be made from the drug trade, the bitter poverty of large parts of the population and the lack of prospects for many young people. I'll put some sources in the show notes. The information here is mainly quotes from a scientific article from BPB, the Federal Agency of Civic Education in Germany. In 2006, the Mexican president, Felipe Calderón, decided on a strategy of open and violent confrontation. The U.S. gave billions of dollars to support this project. Since then, federal police, military and naval units have been at war against the drug cartels. The government has achieved some spectacular successes. Many of the most wanted drug lords have been arrested or killed. But... The resulting power vacuum often led to splits or new formations, which time and time again resulted in new waves of violence and contributed significantly to the current fragmentation of organized crime in Mexico. The new president, López Obrador, promised a new approach towards national security in his election campaign in 2018 demilitarization of security, tackling the social causes of violent crime and the liberalization of a drug policy. Almost four years in office now, not so much has changed. Padre Fili doesn't believe much in politicians. He focuses on his own work and circles to end violence. And how do you make the first connection? I mean, how does it work? You can't just knock on a narco door. How, how does that work? Uh, they go to mass. They go to church. People know who they are. It's how we approach to them. Because we know who they are. And they have a respect for priests. And if we make an appointment, they will receive us. What do you say when you talk? What do you tell them? 
I don't tell them anything at the first hand. I listen them. And when you listen them, their stories, they are not different from other victims. Most of them, they haven't lost their father or their mother or their brothers that also they had been killed. So when you listen them, then they can trust on you and then then you can start talking after you listen their stories. There is two ways to confront or to promote dialogue and peace. And that is how we talk to them. First we listen them and then we try to explore ways that we can re-educate them about the human dignity, about the values of humanity, and I think their spirituality. They're, most of them are Catholics, most of them believe in God, most of them have fear on God, so that helps to have the same language. So it's why religion also can be an opportunity to build peace. Como parte de las manifestaciones de la violencia, Padre Filiberto and his team are attending a workshop on how to strengthen the impact of their human rights organization, Centro Minerva Bello. In the backyard of the church, an experienced human rights activist from Mexico City is helping them to find the core values, working fields and partners for their organization. Centro Minerva Bello only has little resources in time, money and tools. So they want to learn how to use them wisely and more effective. The human rights lawyer Hegel is also there. Also the traditional healer and the accountant. He stayed up till 2 a.m. to organize and print out all the relevant documents. Guadalupe Cantu is also taking part in the workshop. She's a psychologist and works on a voluntary basis for Centro Minerva Bello. She's attending children and teenagers affected by trauma. Either somebody in their family was killed or disappeared, or they were abused themselves. She tells me about one case, for example, a boy who stopped talking when he was two because of all the violence around him. Now he's a teenager. She has been working with him for a year now and he still doesn't speak, but at least he tries to communicate now, she says. Me gusta trabajar con niños porque son unas personas moldeables, entonces son personas inocentes, son personas con las que llegan y todo lo que te dan Guadalupe enjoys working with children because they are still shapeable. They are so innocent, she says. All they give to you in their being is pure, no filter. Adults often have their way of living and their worldview. They don't want to change much, she says. Even though they are suffering, they don't want to change. With kids, it's easier to help them have a better life. When they experience trauma, their first reaction often is being aggressive, Guadalupe says. They beat up animals, pick fights with adults and other kids. They are destructive in school, even beating someone up with a weapon. That is a way to express their pain, Guadalupe says. And the root often lies within el machismo. Boys are told to tighten up, not to express their emotions, never to cry. 
to be the man of the house. Tú no debes de llorar. Entonces ellos tienen, tienen que sacar ese dolor de alguna manera y lo hacen así, siendo agresivos en su totalidad. But the pain has to get out somehow, she says. So the kids and teenagers are being aggressive. Best way to help them is to try building a connection of trust, she says, to listen to them, to just let them be children. We put the whole interview with Guadalupe and also with her colleague on Patreon if you want to dive deeper into psychology and the trauma violence causes. And there are also some hints on how to take care of yourself when people tell you about their pain and suffering. Después de cuatro, cinco, hasta ocho días, dependiendo del tonelaje que le metan. In the mountains above Chilpancingo, beautiful mountain range again, almost sunset. Padre Fili and three students of Ayotzinapa are visiting a mezcal brewer. The priest wants to get some side hustle going for his human rights organization. He needs funding. So far, he put his private money into the organization. The team is mostly working for free or for peanuts. Maybe Mescal can fuel their impact against violence in the region. That's the idea. And it seems a bit ironic or cynical, I have to say. Isn't alcohol one of the catalysts for violence? But yeah, sometimes it helps to just switch off the light and ignore all the misery out there, right? Salud. 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 Por el nuevo proyecto. And the brewer and Philly, they find a deal. Los nuevos clientes. Sí. Los nuevos amores. El profeta, the prophet. <laughs> That's the name of the priest's spirit. And each bottle has a small colorful hat and a braided scarf. The liquor is quite strong. They even have one with a chicken inside. That's the speciality of the mountain. You put a chicken into a barrel of mezcal for several months and it tastes quite interesting, I can tell you. The liquor, I don't know about the chicken. Killing animals seems more and more cruel to me. But I guess when killing people happens on a daily basis, a feathered chicken in a mezcal barrel seems something quite normal, I guess. What I wasn't really aware of before I went to Mexico, I have to admit, the killings here have a connection to Germany. People in Mexico are being killed with weapons that were exported illegally by a German arms manufacturer. There is evidence that police used some of those weapons in the Noche Tragica when the 43 disappeared and six students were killed. The German arms manufacturer Heckler & Koch had used false information to obtain export licenses to Mexico for more than 4,000 rifles, G36 rifles. That deal was made when the former Mexican president called for this fierce war on drugs in 2006, and the US supported him with billions. And some of those illegally exported weapons ended up with Mexican police in Guerrero, one of the states that were banned from receiving weapons because of its human rights violations. Heckler and Koch was convicted to pay 3 million euros. Final ruling in that case was this year. Germany is, after all, the fourth largest arms supplier in the world. I talked to a lawyer at the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, ECCHR, in Berlin about this, Christian Schliemann. 
Die Rüstungsbranche ist an sich eine, die sehr wenig nach außen lässt. Also man kennt ja auch wenig Verträge sozusagen. Hier saß hier, quote, The arms industry is in itself one that lets very little information out into the open. This means you need a certain degree of activism, endurance and knowledge of where you can get that information from, so that you can come to terms with all these deliveries, so that you can then raise awareness for the issue and insist on responsibility if you find out that arms were exported contrary to the law and actually led to the death of people dass Dinge da entgegen der Gesetzeslage exportiert wurden und auch tatsächlich zu, ja, zum Tod von Leuten geführt haben. Just a few months after the final court ruling against Heckler and Koch, another German arms manufacturer had a final ruling with an even higher fine, six sauer. They had to pay 11 million euros because of illegal arms exports to Colombia. And there are still some allegations that Six Sauer also exported weapons to Mexico without the due arms export licenses. Victims, so far, were not allowed to speak in front of a German court. And the human rights lawyer Schliemann, he tried to bring the parents of Ayotzinapa student to a German court, but that was not accepted. Es ist einfach absolut wichtig, dass die gehört werden sollen, weil es sonst eine sehr technische Materie bleibt. He's saying, quote, It is simply absolutely important that victims are heard, because otherwise it remains a very technical matter where it is not at all clear what happened with those arms. And that simply cuts off the overall picture, which is about people who end up being shot, being killed with these arms. And as long as you don't bring that into the court session, only half of the story is told. And that's the less relevant half. Und solange man das nicht mit reinbringt, ist nur die Hälfte der, der Geschichte erzählt, und zwar die weniger relevante Hälfte. The German procedure of controlling the end use of small arms has been changed since the case of Ayotzinapa. Some say because of that case. Also because of that case. But there has not been any kind of recall action campaign like you have it when some yogurt manufacturer finds out there is some bad stuff in their yogurts. So the 4,000 illegally exported weapons should still be somewhere in the hands of Mexican police. And this is especially horrifying since we know now what kind of messages were exchanged between the narcos and police in that noted tragica when the 43 disappeared. The transcripts were released just recently by uh, the Mexican government. It's a chat between the local leader of the Guerreros Unidos cartel and the deputy chief of the local police force in town. We'll put an article in the show notes. They talk about the captured students and the heroin on the buses. The chat ends with the police texting to the narco guy, quote, all the packages have been delivered. A few months after I was back in Germany, I got a message from Philly that his nephew had been taken by armed men and it was unclear what it was all about. He later sent me sound messages to summarize the story. We only have his version here. We could not talk to anybody else involved. Hi, good morning, Elizabeth. So, on May 19, 2021, Around 7 p.m., policemen in three vehicles 
with no search warning, they just took my nephew and his friends in the cars and they took them to the persecutor office, the local persecutor office, but they were presented before an authority. They were waiting in those vehicles in the parking lot of the persecutor office for around three hours. And while they were there, they uh, were beaten and tortured by those policemen. So my sister and my brother-in-law, they were searching for my nephew for those three hours. But around 11, in one of these uh, local persecutor offices, they found him. And what they told them is that they had been caught doing a robbery to uh, women around 11 p.m. But it wasn't true because they were taken three hours before. So what they did, this um, persecutor office, they just invent, invented that crime to hold them in prison. So he's still in, in jail. A few days later, armed men came to his family home, he says, where his parents, his sister and his brother-in-law are living. They left a cell phone there. So later, around 2.50, they received a call from that phone that they uh, gave to them. And with aggressive tone, a person told them that they had to pay a ransom. So... They argue that they were the ones who paid these authorities to took my my nephew. So from that extortion, my family was displaced. They moved away from their house for around three months because they have fear. El sacerdote y activista mexicano Filiberto Velázquez presentó ante la Fiscalía. It was on the news. Philly went to Mexico City to file a complaint with the Attorney General's Office for Organized Crime and Extortion. Because he says his nephew was taken by police illegally and the threat and ransom demand, of course, were also illegally. So far, he hasn't heard back and his nephew is still with the police, he says, now in jail. The accusation is he robbed a lady at an hour and time when he already was with the police. Months before that, I had asked him about his utopia. My utopia is a world without suffering, especially that the most vulnerable, the children, the poor, the elderly, The sick will have always someone who cares for them, for their lives. And is there anything in this world that shows you that we are getting closer to this utopia? Like, I don't know, stories, some figures, some people? Yes. There will be always, there has been always these great men and women that give their lives for those dreams, for those utopias, and that is what 
inspire people like me and others to to believe in dreams. What can the listeners of Radio Utopistan do within the next 24 hours or in the next week to be part of your utopia, to support your utopia? Um, to listen the whole story, to listen again, because in this in these times where we get news in our hands with these smartphones and technology, we can forget the good stories. So we need to repeat them, repeat these utopias, and also to be involved in, uh, in solidarity with this kind of projects. So if someone wants to be a volunteer, they will be always welcome here in our utopia and we will work together to make it true. So you heard the invitation and I guess he means it. We promise to leave you with a summary of the utopian aspects of that case. There are many and we cannot even name or recognize all of them. What seemed most important to us are six points here. First, one, evidence that even in the darkest places where it's really easy to become an asshole, you don't even need much of an excuse there. Even there, there are people who are committed to spreading peace and love and being generous, building community instead of feeding their very own ego. Second, the system has picked up on Padre Fili's fight for peace and justice. At least the bishop is supporting his work and the attorney general took the case of his missing nephew. Third, people who could never afford therapy, a lawyer or treatment from a traditional healer can now get help in Fili's organization. Fourth, the students of Ayotzinapa have someone to talk to and to trust. No evidence here, but I'm sure they use less violence because of that. At other places, it has been shown that trust and being seen and listened to leads to less violence. See, for example, our episode on right-wing extremism. Fifth, the German procedure of controlling the end use of small arms has been changed since the case of Ayatzinapa. And some say also because of the case of Ayatzinapa. It's not so easy anymore for the fourth largest arms supplier in the world to export small arms in high-risk countries. Six, it's the little things that can make a difference. Like the human rights lawyer Hegel Ramirez was saying, he's doing what he can to break the circle of violence within the tiny circle of his very own life because he hopes that when he needs it, somebody else will do the same for him. And that way peace will spread. That's a very Christian worldview, but Hegel says he does not believe in God, rather in logic and in philosophy, as his first name already suggests. So, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the end of our Aizunapa Utopista story, the final episode of our first season of 10 Utopian Stories. I guess that means you are a little utopian yourself, hmm? or a big-time utopista even. 
tell us, what are your utopias? We are very curious to hear, really. Josephine from Beirut, for example, from Lebanon, she told us her utopia is a world with open borders and endless cultural exchange between communities over food and art. That sounds nice and uh, very utopian, I have to say. She's working on it, she says. At a cultural space they established in an old fuel station after the huge blast in Beirut last summer. You can check it out on our Instagram and on theirs. There are also some more utopistas. If you know someone or you are an utopista yourself, please write to us. Utopia can also be very small. It doesn't have to be in the, in the most violent place or attempting to change the whole world. Maybe it's about a playground or about rubbish or about one house. I don't know. Tell us. We would like to know some more utopistas out there. There must be more. We are sure about that. And if you know someone who could need a little utopian inspiration, please share this episode with them. Or another episode of Radio Utopistan, maybe the one about how to sue ExxonMobil, the World Bank and your own government. Or the one about Nazis and how to deal with them. We are grateful for any support because so far we are all working for free and Radio Utopistan is running on our own private money. We don't want to bother you with ads and also we don't want to depend on big donors or media houses, that's why. But just recently we got acknowledged officially as a legal entity for the greater good. This was a long and winding road through German bureaucracy, I can tell you. But now we are there. The champagne is still in the fridge because we can't really believe it until now. But yeah, cheers to that. So now it's easier for us to apply for public funding and for you to support us or to collaborate with us. We invite you dearly to do that. Check out our website. There's a donation button and some information. We'll give parts of the money we get donated away to our autopistas. And you can also support us on Patreon. There you will get additional content, like for this episode, it is the full-length interview with Padre Fili, with one of the survivors of the Noted Tragica, and with the two psychologists on Fili's team. There is also more information about what's happening inside Radio Utopista, and for as little as one euro a month, you can become a Utopini to support the stories here. If you want, you can give more, of course. <laughs> Then you can be an Optopista Grande. So much for now. Thank you again for being here and being utopian. My name is Elisabeth Weidt. Radio Utopistan team for this episode are executive producer Christina Femöbus and Charlotte Horn, research support Anushka Eckert, music Robert Pilgrim. Thank you and bye-bye. I see you in season two. Salud. 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 Por el nuevo proyecto. Los nuevos clientes. Sí. Los nuevos amores. Yo comí a salud. <laughs>